please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll continue our studies in 1 Peter. This morning we're going to be looking at suffering for righteousness sake. Suffering for righteousness sake. And our passage is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13 through to 18. Having spent several weeks considering Christian conduct, we're now going to look at some comforting and fortifying, strengthening words for all who suffer persecution for Christ's sake. Christian suffering is a very familiar theme in the Bible and that certainly tells me that that is because it is something that is pretty much to be expected if you are a Christian. You can read about suffering in various books of the New Testament. <clears throat> Particularly, you, you can find that you will be a recipient of, um, you will receive, you will suffer rather at the hands of this world if you seek to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world as you look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 13 and 14, Peter said, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be, dis- neither be troubled. So Peter asked a question there, didn't he, in verse 13. Who is he that, that, who is he that will harm you? if he be followers of that which is good. And we get an idea of the answer in verse 14 there. But, and if ye suffer for, for righteousness sake, happy are ye. It would be nice to say that no one will harm you if you're a Christian, but that's not the reality. That's hardly likely to be the case in this wicked world. Generally speaking, you need not be afraid of rulers if you are a Christian. After all, if you're law-abiding and peaceful, you are the model citizen. What more could a ruler ask for? However, verse 14 assumes the likelihood that Christians will suffer for righteousness' sake to varying degrees And history has shown that to be the case. Christians suffer at the hands of rulers who are not in their right mind. And they suffer at the hands of Christian hating people generally. Even so, they are not to be afraid of their terror. Neither are they to be troubled. The reality is that the world and its rulers, they hate Jesus. Even in democracies and 
countries that have some kind of semblance of being Christian. Even countries that still have songs of praises on television and stuff like that. They hate Jesus. And that is because he is light. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Furthermore, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Who was Jesus speaking to? Well, certainly his apostles. And they were called to be apostles. And most certainly the world did hate them. Most of them were martyred. But this does apply to disciples of Jesus equally as well. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you can expect the the world to hate you because the world hates Jesus. If you are a Christian, you will irritate people, you will anger them, and that is because their own sinfulness will be exposed if you are salt and if you are light in this world. Even so, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here in verse 14, Peter said pretty much the same thing when he said, But... And if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Happy. Do you feel happy when you suffer for righteousness sake? You really do ought to. It's a, that is, that's all part of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being in Christ. No one likes suffering, but it's a great privilege and a great joy to suffer. For Christ's sake. We see that in Acts of the Apostles. When the, when the Apostles, when they were beaten for, for proclaiming the way, for preaching the gospel, they rejoiced. They didn't go out looking for trouble. But when trouble found them, because they were being obedient to their calling, they rejoiced. Happy are ye. We can move on from verse 15. Sorry, to verse 15. With a message from the apostle not to have fearful and troubled hearts when we as Christians suffer for righteousness sake. Verse 14, look at verse 14. But if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be be troubled. Does that mean that puny old you and puny old me are to cast out all of those negative things, the, the being fearful, being afraid, being troubled, 
Are you or I in any position to do that? Surely if you're afraid, you're afraid. You can tell yourself as much as you want that you're not afraid, but that won't change a thing, will it? If you're troubled about something, you continue to be troubled. No matter if you, no matter how much you try and convince yourself that you're not troubled. It's hardly likely to happen that you are to be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled if it's left to you to do anything about it. It will happen, however, if the fear and the agitation within your heart is replaced with something else, something far better and something far stronger than all those negative things. Let's have a look at verse 15 now. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So, the antidote to to bring to being fearful and troubled, the antidote to it is to reverence the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts. It's got to be better, isn't it? Being fearful in your hearts, how do you get rid of that? You fill your hearts with Jesus. You reverence him in your heart. You look to him. You lean upon him. You hide under the shadow of his wings. You rest in his mighty hand. I've already mentioned those things today. This is what we read in the scriptures. And this is what we do as Christians. We take shelter and refuge in Jesus. You are to be so focused on Jesus that he is foremost in your thoughts and in your meditations. Way beyond anything else. If your heart and your mind is filled with Jesus, how can there be any room left for fear and agitation? Also, you are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. We see that in verse 15. I think we need to have a a short lesson in Greek to understand that. First of all, looking at verse 15 here, you look at the last bit there. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word that has been translated answer, if you can see that there, if you've got your finger on that word, or you're looking at it, that word in Greek is apologia, apologia, okay? From which we get the word apology. So, Let's have a look at that again now. Be ready always to give an apology to every man that asks you. Does that mean we go around apologising for being Christians and saying sorry to people? I am so sorry that I follow Jesus, that I trust in Jesus. Please forgive me. You know it's not the case. 
And what that, and the reason is because that Greek word, apologia, it means to defend. We get the English word apology, but you look it up in a dictionary, there are two meanings to it. One of them is certainly to be sorry. You apologise when you've done something wrong, no doubt. But also it means giving a defence, defending (coughs) your faith. There's, uh, I don't normally publicise churches um, that I listen to or anything like that, but there is one that I follow from time to time, an American church, Apologia Church, and uh, I find their sermons to be most helpful at times. But they certainly don't, the pastor certainly doesn't apologise for things. He doesn't say sorry. He's someone who defends the truth. Also, the word reason in verse 15, if you look at that now. So, be ready always to defend, give a defense of your faith to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Again, coming back to the Greek there. The Greek word is logos, which is much more often translated word. Word of God, the scriptures. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you look at John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus, Logos, but it means Word. So, let's see how we're going with this now. With all these things in mind, how are you to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts and give a scriptural defence of the living hope that you have as a result of having been begotten again by the resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what's being said here. Give a defence of the hope that you have Through faith in the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus here. And the answer ought to be glaringly obvious. It is as a result of immersing yourself in the scriptures. Because putting it negatively, if you have no appetite for the word of God, the logos, if you have no appetite for the word of God, I think it follows that you have no appetite for Jesus. I don't think it's coincidental that the the, the word, as in the scriptures, and Jesus, they're both logos. And I would need someone to try and explain to me how you can have a very real interest in Jesus if you've got no interest in the word. Uh, I'd, I'd challenge anyone to explain that to me. If you have no interest in the word of God, then your thoughts will not be centred on Jesus. Or at least not the Jesus of the Bible. And far from giving a rational defence of the hope that you have, you will be tied up in knots by those who oppose you and you will be made to look foolish. 
you most certainly will be in no position to be not afraid of the terror. It's there in verse 15. Be ready always to give an answer to every man. That means to defend, to give a defense of what it is you believe. Uh, who, everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness. And that word reason is logos. Can you tell people when they come to you and when they attack your faith, why you do this? Why are you saying that? Can you explain to them why? And at the same time, or use it rather as an opportunity to exalt and magnify Jesus without having fear, without being troubled about the consequences. And indeed, thanking God, all the while you're speaking to them, just praising God for the opportunity that he has given you. I see it day in and day out. Christians who barely know what it is they believe and for whom Jesus may just as well be a million miles away instead of being sanctified in their hearts. I can't see into people's hearts, but you can learn a lot just by speaking to people. We are to be bold with a holy boldness as we defend the faith and the hope that we have with biblical explanations we are to do so with meekness and fear. We see that at the very end of verse 15. In other words, we are to do so with a gentle spirit and with the fear of God. After all, whilst it is a tremendous privilege to defend the gospel of Christ, you really don't want to be mixing the word of God, truth. You don't want to be mixing truth with error. Therefore, dear Christian, with God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure, are you able, from your knowledge of the word of God, to defend the hope that you have? To a hostile world and to do so with meekness and with fear of God. If you are, I would love to have you join me the next time I go out evangelising. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. When you are being opposed and misunderstood about something or other, it's generally a good idea if you are able to gently and intelligently defend your position with facts. And when you do so, people will generally concede and they will be grateful for the explanation that you've given them, the clarification, provided, of course, that their proud hearts will allow them to do so. That's what happens when there's a misunderstanding. You, you, you don't just shrug your shoulders. You come out with why it is. Well, actually, you've got this wrong. This is how it is. Thank you very much. 
I didn't understand before, but I understand very well now. If pride, if pride, um, pride allows them to do that. And if they don't budge, at least you've given them food for thought. And of course, this is equally so when you are defending the hope that you have in Jesus. You explain things to them scripturally. This is how it is. Thus saith the Lord. And you, you, you open up the scriptures to them. And then, who knows? You may put a stone or two in their shoes. If nothing else, they may walk away from you, hobbling a bit, feeling rather uncomfortable. They may shout at you. There, there could be a variety of responses. And it depends on the Lord, doesn't it? When you do, when you give a defence of your faith and the hope that you have, gently and all times maintaining a conduct that is God-honouring, whether you are leaving that conversation unscathed or battered, either way, you can do so with a good conscience and with thanksgiving in your heart for the great privilege and the great joy of having had a door of utterance open to you to proclaim the gospel of Christ. If you are verbally or physically abused, far better for that to happen to you in God-honouring encounters with the enemies of God than because you have done something shameful and worthy of punishment. Let's have a look at verse 18 now. For Christ also have once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We'll finish with this verse, verse 18, and uh, next week, God willing, we'll start with verse 18. In this verse, our attention is turned to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great example. Obviously, we are not Jesus, and we don't claim to be, and we don't pretend to be. But he is given here as the example of one, the ultimate example of someone who suffered for righteousness sake. And you have no business just putting a line through it and saying, well, this doesn't apply to me then. It's about Jesus. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as no man has ever spoken, for he speaks with authority and truth. That's Jesus, obviously, and not us. Although we do have the scriptures. Again, if we are speaking from the scriptures, then we are speaking the word of God to people. Far better to do that than to give your own feeble opinions. His conduct and his conscience are pure and beyond reproach. He is the righteousness of God. He is perfectly meek and he is lowly in heart. Even so, Jesus suffered for righteousness sake in that he was rejected by wicked men. The world hated him, as I've already said. He was nailed to a cross. He was lifted up to die. There are professing Christians who insist that God did not punish his son in the place of sinners. 
For example, Steve Chalk, a Baptist minister and founder of the Oasis Charitable Trust, big organisation. They've got over 5,000 workers in, in the UK alone. They're all over the world. Chalk has said the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offence he has not even committed. Well, guess what? Mr Chalk is wrong. He's wrong. The plain teaching of the Bible is that Jesus was sacrificially punished in the place of sinners. For example, here in verse 18, it is written, For Christ also have once suffered for sins. The just, that's him. For the unjust, that's us. When Jesus suffered for sins, not his own, he did so as the sacrificial Lamb of God, who was wounded or pierced through for the transgressions of all who trust in him, and his body was broken or bruised for their wickedness. That sure sounds like punishment to me. With regards, Mr Chalk, I would not want to be anywhere near him when he is giving an answer to someone about the hope that is within him or when he preaches it from a church pulpit. Even if he does so with a meekness that I have come nowhere near to attaining to. I say that because there is no power in that kind of gospel, no power in that message that he preaches. We are to give an account to people from the scriptures, a defence from the scriptures, one that has power, the power of God. The gospel of Christ clearly tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Furthermore, dear Christian, the scriptures tell us that Jesus rose again the third day. That he, that is rather, that is the greatest of all messages. It is what those who reproach you for righteousness sake, they need to hear. Even when they speak evil of you, you never know if they might depart from you burdened by sin, challenged by the gospel of Christ even if they say nasty things to you. The gospel will inevitably ruffle feathers and that it address, and that is because it addresses people's sin and their need of the Saviour. You wouldn't expect anything else, would you? Just think of when people were witnessing to you before you became a believer. If there is someone in here now who feels their sins weighing heavy upon them, it's time to to stop resisting Jesus and his gospel. Receive him as your saviour and your Lord. And to God be the glory. As you go on to bear testimony to others, you who at the the moment um, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, as you go on to, to defend your faith, to other people telling them about the mercy and the grace of God towards you and what a privilege that is I can't think of any greater privilege 
for any of us hell deserving sinners to talk to people about the God who loved us and who gave himself for us at the cross. Amen. We'll finish with number 584. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains.